I would like to just take a moment to say to you that I really don't think you fully understand what has happened to these people that you look at as second class or inferior citizens in this nation. Black people who were brought to this country were stripped of their names, language, culture, religion, God, and taken totally away from the history of themselves. Here are 30 million people who don't wear their own names, they wear your names. Who don't speak their own language, they speak English, which is not their language. They never, never were allowed their own cultural expression of Africa. Don't you realize that when you turn a people upside down and inside out, then sell them, not for a day, not for a year, but for 300 years and deny us the human right to know, to read a book, to learn, to understand. And then, 300 years of that, you allow us into the church, but by that time, you've painted Jesus white, God white, the angels white, and then all these black people have been subjected to a form of white supremacy, which produces in the reverse a black inferiority. Today is Monday, June 26, the year is 2020. This is No Easy Answers, and I am your host, Jules Taylor, and today, like all days, I have no easy answers for you. I would like to start this discussion today by telling you about Francis Julius Bellamy. Francis lived from 1855 to 1931. He was an author, a minister, and a Christian socialist. He championed the rights of working people, an equal distribution of economic resources, which he believed was inherent in the teachings of Jesus. He was forced out of the pulpit by angry parishioners who disliked his tendency to describe Jesus as a socialist. Francis was also the founding vice president of the Society of Christian Socialists and once offered public education courses with topics such as Jesus the Socialist and Socialism versus Anarchy. The name Francis Bellamy should be familiar to you, as most Americans know his most famous work by heart, The Pledge of Allegiance. As a socialist, he had initially considered including the word equality, but he decided against it, knowing that state superintendents of education on his committee were against equality for women and African Americans. It was in October of 1892, on the 400th anniversary of Columbus Day, that children across the United States first recited the Pledge of Allegiance. Here's Francis Bellamy's original wording. I pledge allegiance to my flag and the republic for which it stands, one nation, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. In 1923, the words, the flag of the United States of America, were added out of fear that immigrant children would not clearly understand which flag they were meant to be saluting. In 1952, Congress voted to insert the words, under God, completing the wording of the pledge that we know today. Now, one could speculate that Bellamy, despite being an ordained minister, did not include the words under God in his original wording out of respect for the separation of church and state. One could also speculate that if Bellamy were around at the time of the insertion of the words under God, he would not, as a Christian, take offense to the wording adjustment. 
Historian Kevin Cruz acknowledges that the insertion of the phrase under God was actually part of a larger pushback against Russian and Chinese atheistic communism during the Cold War, but he argues that the longer arc of history shows the conflation of Christianity with capitalism, and I do believe Francis Bellamy would have a real bone to pick with America about that. Under God is inherently religious and doesn't belong in the public schools. Doug? I would have joined Judge O'Scanlan, under God is not inherently religious. It accurately reflects our history and political principle. Very good. That's what I, I like at the top of the show, a nice clean disagreement. The inclusion of God in our pledge, therefore, would further acknowledge the dependence of our people and our government upon the moral directions of the Creator. There is a tremendous difference between a history lesson and a pledge. The words under God were inserted in the Pledge of Allegiance not to reaffirm our history, but because it was said... How we're can you say that? Well, this, is, this, this was congressional. This was The irony of a lifelong Christian socialist who believed the politics of socialism were inherent to the teachings of Christ himself, composing a Pledge of Allegiance, which is then co-opted by capitalism to push back against communist and socialist politics abroad, and couple capitalism with Christianity, is superbly rich. Bellamy also contributed a flag salute to be performed while reciting the pledge. This action would come to be known as the Bellamy Salute. Unfortunately, the Bellamy salute greatly resembled the Roman salute, and the Roman salute would later be adopted by Italian fascists and Nazi Germans. Congress would vote to replace the Bellamy salute with the hand-over-the-heart gesture in 1942. In 1943, the Supreme Court ruled in the West Virginia State Board of Education versus Barnett that students could not be forced to salute the U.S. flag or say the pledge because doing so would violate their First Amendment rights. Despite this ruling, for many years, American classrooms ritually began their day by saluting the flag and reciting the pledge. These days, starting the day out with the pledge is left up to the individual district and school, but this was very consistent, at least until the late 1980s. Now, it's not an overkill to plainly state that a ritual reciting the pledge is the first step of indoctrinating children into nationalism. After all, what utility does the Pledge of Allegiance have if not for purposes of building nationalism and national loyalty? The young, impressionable minds who are made to memorize the pledge and its cadence are as malleable as the pledge itself, which we know has been augmented by design in order to accomplish broader ideological goals such as the conflation of capitalism with Christianity. The national anthem is of a similar utility, just a tool in the toolbox for constructing the ideology of patriots. Now while all nations have pledges and anthems and make use of them in similar ways, I doubt the stories of how the ideological pillars of other nations came to be are as uniquely damning to the national character as the historical truths behind the pledge, the national anthem, and the Declaration of Independence. I would submit to you that every core tenet of American ideology, be it a pledge, a song, a document, or a historical figure, has not so well hidden truths just below the surface. This duality of narratives is pervasive starting at the birth of America with her founders. There's gonna be fireworks, fireworks. on the 4th of July. Red, white, and blue fireworks like diamonds in the sky. Diamonds in the sky. We're gonna 
shoot the entire works on fireworks that really show. Oh yeah, we declared our liberty 200 years ago. John Trumbull's famous 1818 painting hangs in the U.S. Capitol Rotunda, where it has been since 1926. The 12 by 18 foot oil on canvas depicts the presentation of the Declaration of Independence to Congress, along with 42 out of 56 signers of the Declaration. In 2019, a Twitter user named Alan Parsa took a digital image of this painting and placed red dots over the faces of those historical figures who owned slaves. The result was a vivid representation of how pervading slave ownership was among the Founding Fathers, having only eight faces left uncovered. Now, while most Americans are aware to varying degrees that the Founding Fathers were mostly slave owners, it may come as a shock to some when they find out that most of all the early presidents, with the exceptions of John Adams and his son John Quincy Adams, were slave owners. The last president to own enslaved people was Ulysses S. Grant, the former commanding general of the Union Army. Some presidents are comparatively less guilty than others, like Martin Van Buren owning a single slave during his early career versus someone like Zachary Taylor, who owned around 150 enslaved workers on his plantations in Kentucky, Mississippi, and Louisiana. Out of all the early presidents and founding fathers, Thomas Jefferson is clearly the one that carries the greatest degree of guilt in his legacy. Historical assessments of Jefferson have been mixed, but generally they fall into one of three categories. There are those in the emancipationist camp, who maintained that Jefferson was an opponent of slavery all of his life, noting that he did what he could within the limited range of options available to him to undermine the institution of slavery. They also point out the many legal attempts at abolition legislation and the manner in which he provided for his slaves and his advocacy for their more humane treatment. There's the revisionist camp, which criticizes Jefferson for racism and for holding slaves and for acting contrary to his words. And there's the contextualists, which emphasize a change in Jefferson's thinking from his emancipationist views before 1783, noting that Jefferson seemed to yield to public opinion by 1794 as he laid the groundwork for his first presidential campaign against John Adams in 1796. Looked at in full, you find a man whose life was made possible by slavery, who had misgivings, who as a young man attempted, however feebly, to reform the institution. But in the end, he was ultimately someone who was trapped by, allowed himself to be trapped by the economic, political, and cultural circumstances into which he was born. Jefferson owned far more enslaved people than any other person in John Trumbull's painting. In total, there were around 600 enslaved people most of them residing at Monticello, which was Jefferson's former primary residence and sprawling mountaintop plantation in Charlottesville, Virginia. 135 enslaved people came to Jefferson through inheritance when his father-in-law died. At the time of Jefferson's writing of the Declaration of Independence, the practice of slavery had been so thoroughly denounced that Thomas Paine wrote that the case for slavery had been, quote, sufficiently disproven. In a March of 1775 edition of the Pennsylvania Journal and Weekly Advisor, Thomas Paine published an essay calling for the abolition of slavery, the resettlement of freed slaves, and he likened the institution of slavery to those colonial grievances about Britain. To quote from his article, 
They complain so loudly of attempts to enslave them, while they hold so many hundred thousands in slavery, and annually enslave many thousands more, without any pretense of authority or claim upon them. How just and how suitable to our crime is the punishment with which providence threatens us. We have enslaved multitudes and shed innocent blood in doing it, and are now threatened with the same by the English. Should all not immediately discontinue and renounce it, with grief and abhorrence? Should not every society bear testimony against it and consider obstinate persisters in it bad men, enemies to their country, and exclude them from fellowship, as they often do for much lesser faults? Thomas Paine was not the only abolitionist commenting on the irony of slaveholders declaring their independence. The British abolitionist Thomas Day similarly stated in 1776, quote, If there be an object truly ridiculous in nature, it is an American patriot signing resolutions of independency with one hand and with the other brandishing a whip over his affrighted slaves. It's easy to surmise a hypocritical stance held by Jefferson, knowing the words he penned while simultaneously keeping hundreds of enslaved people. Even the staunchest of emancipationists would not disagree with the labeling, but they would be sure to argue the ways in which Jefferson acted to legally undermine slavery as an institution and bring up a major accomplishment in the Jefferson presidency, which was the ending of the international slave trade. In fact, with Jefferson's leadership and probable authorship, the Virginia General Assembly banned importing people to be used as slaves in 1778. All other states, except for South Carolina, eventually followed by the time Congress banned the trade in 1807. Historical records seem to indicate that Jefferson supported gradual emancipation since the 1770s. There are records of Jefferson speaking out against slavery, calling it, quote, a moral depravity, and, quote, a hideous blot, and, quote, contrary to the rules of nature, which decreed that everyone had the right to personal liberty. But despite these remarks, he continued to profit from the keeping of enslaved people. These very sentiments proved to be nothing more than lip service when you read his Notes on the State of Virginia, in which he wrote that he suspected black people to be inferior to white people. To Jefferson, the decision to emancipate slaves would have to be part of a democratic process, and abolition would be stymied until slave owners consented to free their human property together in a large-scale act of emancipation. While the contextualists and the emancipationists present Jefferson as a complex and nuanced historical figure, with seemingly redemptive actions taken during his life, the criticisms of Jefferson made by revisionists are not at all reductive. Jefferson did not see, or professed not to see, the possibility of an interracial republic, the coexistence of freed former slaves with their former masters. There are lots of reasons for this. Uh, one would be his notion of what a republic is based on the full equality of citizens. He sets a high standard for citizenship and the irony of that is that it means that those people who, by his estimation, don't reach that high standard can't be citizens. It's much easier to accommodate difference where you have a hierarchical notion of society. There is an argument to be made that the abolition of slavery in England in 1774 was the primary impetus for the American Revolution. If England were to force the ending of slavery in the colonies, it would have been a direct threat to the fortunes of slave-owning founding fathers. Jefferson didn't free his slaves, right? Well, he couldn't for a couple of reasons. One, practical, he couldn't afford to. He was deep in debt and died with 
the equivalent of $100,000 in debt, which is a tremendous amount of money in those days. And so his creditors, of course, would have claims, did have claims on all his property. Further arguments would point to a different motivation for Jefferson's ending of the international slave trade. In 1791, the Haitian Revolution began as a slave revolt and would continue until 1804, when they declared their independence. Jefferson lived his life under constant fear of slave revolts, as was a common fear among white wealthy enslaving landowners in the South. The news of enslaved people successfully taking the island from their white masters, resisting a French counter-revolution, and placing an end to French colonial endeavors in the region, sparked a fear that similar revolts would happen in the States. The records of Jefferson expressing his belief in white supremacy, along with the ending of slavery in England and the Haitian Revolution, provide a compelling counter-narrative to the emancipationist and contextualist arguments, but perhaps the most damning indictment of Jefferson was not settled upon until 1998. Sally Hemings was an enslaved woman of mixed race owned by Thomas Jefferson. She was also the half-sister of Jefferson's late wife, Martha, a product of her slave-trading father and one of his slaves. She came to live at Monticello as an infant with her siblings and mother, as part of the 135 enslaved people bequeathed by Martha's father to Martha and Thomas Jefferson. Most historians agree that Jefferson began a sexual relationship with Hemings when she was around the age of 14. For more than 150 years, historians denied rumors of Jefferson having an enslaved concubine. When pressed on the issue, they would claim one of Jefferson's nephews was the father of Hemings' children. It was not until the 1970s when historians of Jefferson started to lose control of the narrative. A DNA test in 1998 showed there was a high probability that Thomas Jefferson was the biological father of Eston Hemings, with a nearly perfect match between the DNA of Jefferson's paternal uncle and the descendants of Eston Hemings. In the fall of 2001, the National Genealogical Society published a special issue devoted to the Jefferson's-Hemings controversy. The experts in the publication stated that historical, genealogical, and DNA evidence all support the conclusion that Thomas Jefferson was the father of all of Hemings' six children. At the risk of seeming crude or gauche, I want to be clear that historians are now in agreement that Sally Hemings was raped by Thomas Jefferson from the time she was 14 until Jefferson's death. For 39 years, she was in a non-consensual relationship that produced children who Thomas Jefferson also kept as enslaved people. Although the actions of Jefferson are reprehensible, they are in line with the character and practices of other colonial slavers, and there is reason to believe Jefferson is not unique among the former presidents and founding fathers. The slave-owning version of Jefferson is unsuitable for building the pride and folklore of a nation, and America cannot perfect herself as the nation she aspires to be, standing on a foundation of oppression in direct contradiction to her ideals. The Star-Spangled Banner is not immune from these indictments either. The lyrics in the third verse are, quote, celebrating the murder of enslaved people. No refuge could save the hireling and slave from the terror or flight or the gloom of the grave. When one takes an honest appraisal of American history, 
many historical narratives are not as they seem. Take for example the concept of taxation without representation, which is typically pointed to as the main reason why the colonies revolted against England and declared their independence. In a recent interview, historian Gerald Horn finds a different line of reasoning behind the colonial revolt. When the settlers here in North America revolted against British rule in 1776, uh, a major impetus for that revolt was what was going on in London in terms of Somerset's case in 1772, where England decided to abolish slavery in English, England itself. There was a fear that that decision would leapfrog the Atlantic, jeopardizing the fortunes of a murderous row of so-called founding fathers, including George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, Patrick Henry, the lawyer for slave owners, President Number 2, John Adams. And so rather than run that risk, they revolted. American folklore is easily turned on its head when approached with any kind of historical veracity. If one were to factor in Somerset's case as the deciding factor which led to the colonial rebellion, one can liken the argument of taxation without representation to the false notion that the Confederacy seceded in order to preserve states' rights. That is not to say that taxation without representation was not a legitimate grievance, but centering the American Revolution's causes around England's ending of chattel slavery places the founders of America under a revealing light. For Americans who subscribe to the belief the folklore of their nation is an accurate version of history, these indictments are not easily received by them. A good faith attempt at communicating the moral truth concerning the ideology of America can be perceived as an assault on deeply held belief systems or an attack on America itself. American exceptionalism crumbles under historical scrutiny, and American innocence, in turn, fails to absolve our nation of its sins when our nation takes on the character of its founders. The American Revolution then becomes a war fought for the continuance of slavery under the auspices of dishonorable men who were penning hollow words men of lower classes took as truth backed up by principle and died for. In his 1968 book, Soul on Ice, Eldridge Cleaver writes, quote, What has suddenly happened is that the white race has lost its heroes. Worse, its heroes have been revealed as villains and its greatest heroes as the arch-villains. They recoil in shame from the spectacle of cowboys and pioneers, their heroic forefathers whose exploits filled earlier generations with pride, galloping across a movie screen shooting down Indians like Coke bottles. Even Winston Churchill, who was looked upon by older whites as perhaps the greatest hero of the 20th century, even he, because of the system which he was a creature and which he served, is an arch-villain in the eyes of the young white rebels. The more you know about American history, the less of a patriot you should be. There was a time when I was a patriot, considering it my duty to love my country despite its flaws. I was a believer in American exceptionalism, and I believed America to be the quote, shining city upon a hill John Winthrop imagined. I believed our military was spreading democracy around the world and that our democracy was a standard you could judge other nations by. You could say I have an ever-worsening condition of anti-Americanism. My patriotism has been chipped away at by historical truths which lay in direct contradiction to our purported national ideals. The America I imagined is now in dissolution, with the truths of her history urging me to further deconstruct the nationalist fables told to me as a child. After all, 
History is an inheritance bequeathed to all mankind, and we ought to protect these truths as they are our only insight into our current collective worsening conditions. History helps us decipher the world around us, and we must act to ensure that the well of history is not poisoned with misinformation. Maybe the broader ideological question being asked is what do the words of the Declaration of Independence mean if the writer did not believe in the equality of all men? With the words of Jefferson clearly not applying to the enslaved, can you imagine, all around you, slave owners celebrating newfound national independence? The disappointment of believing perhaps a mass emancipation was in the works by the words written into the formation of a new government, only to have nothing change. This is a reoccurring nightmare for black Americans. Though the industry and infrastructure of this nation was built upon the backs of slavery, the destiny of America was separate and apart from the destiny of black Americans. In other words, the disenfranchisement of African Americans started before we were independent, and disenfranchisement of African Americans was ratified in the Declaration of Independence. The need for cheap labor outweighs the need for honoring our national promises to this day. The prosperity of a few plantation owners was paramount, as the fields of sugar and cotton thirsted for laborers and single-handedly fueled the North Atlantic slave trade, just as a handful of billionaires today salivate for cheap labor and further exploitations of the working class. Is it any wonder that our country did not make it through a hundred years of independence without a civil war erupting? Civil war was a down payment on the price our nation pays for betraying our written ethos. And yet again, much of that cost was paid for by African Americans, this time fighting in the Union Army for half wages. Of course, you can't expect soldiers to fight for their freedom and still be accepting of subjugation. I will leave you now with this quote from Robin D.G. Kelly. This generation of abolitionists have the most visionary conception of abolition in history. The presumption was that the constitutional basis of our system was sound. We just had to fix it to include everyone. This generation is saying it's not sound, it never has been sound, it's been based on dispossession, white supremacy, and gender violence. And so this vision of abolition is not better jails, better police, better training. It's no police, it's no jails, it's no prisons. It's creating a new means of justice that's not based on criminalization, but based on affirmation and reparation. And by reparation, that is trying to repair relationships that have been damaged and destroyed as a result of you know five centuries of warfare against indigenous peoples, Africans, poor white people, Asian Pacific Americans, and Latinx populations. You know, so here is an opportunity to actually transform not just the nation, but the entire world. And that's it for episode four of No Easy Answers. My name is Jules Taylor. Thank you guys so much for uh, listening. And if you have any questions, comments, concerns, complaints, or you just want to say hi, uh, you can send me an email, noeasyanswerspodcast at gmail. I look forward to hearing from you. Uh, you can also find me across social media at No Easy Answers Pod or No Easy Answers Podcast, uh, depending on what social media platform you're looking me up on. Anyway, um, 
means a lot to me that you guys listen, that you continue to uh, download, subscribe, share with your friends, uh, talk about this sort of stuff. If you have any sort of uh, you know topic recommendations or requests, if you uh, want to be a guest on the show, or if you know someone that I should maybe have a conversation with, uh, please send me a message, hit me up, slide in my DMs or whatever it is uh, you guys do. So anyway, um, thank you. Love you. Talk to you soon. See you next time. Bye.